I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys, and welcome to Cork Talk. This episode comes to you from the second annual NC Wine Blogger Summit. This event brings together wine bloggers and wineries from across the state for a day of learning and networking. At the end of the day, we featured a panel of winemakers to sit down and discuss challenges of making wine in North Carolina and what they've learned over the years. On the panel were Sharuthi Dupathi from Addison Farms Vineyard, Mark Frizzolowski from Childress Vineyards, Nadia Hetzel from Cypress Bend Vineyards, and Michael Helton from Hanover Park Vineyard. It was a great conversation and the audience was really engaged with learning from these excellent winemakers. A quick programming note. We were sharing microphones on the panel, and some of the winemakers were sitting a little further away, so you may need to turn up the volume. So sit back, pour a glass, turn up the volume, and listen. First up on the panel is we have Sharuthi from Addison Farms. Next, we have Mark Prislowski from Childers Vineyards. Next up is Michael Helton of Hanover Park. And finally, we have Nadia Hetzel of Cypress Bend Vineyards. Welcome to the panel here. We're recording this live at, before the studio at Hanover Park audience. So thank you. It's part of the 2019 NC Wine Waters Summit. So, this panel is talking about winemaking in North Carolina, so we've got a diverse panel here uh, before us. So let's get started with just some brief introductions and tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and how long you've been doing it. So we'll start with Sharuthi and go down the line. Um, I'm Sharuthi Dupati, uh, and I have, I fell in love with wine through the restaurant industry, so I've been in restaurants since I was 17. Um, and then I started doing internships for wine in 2010, every year, and then went to school and then started working at Addison Farms. So, officially making wine, it's only been really a year, a year and a half. Well, talk about your training. Um, in my training, so I worked in um, Southern, I got to make sweet wines, I got to make uh, dry Sauvignon Blanc, I got to make Bordeaux blends in Bordeaux as well as Washington State. I got to make Chianti and some Riesel from the uh, Riesling from the Mosel Valley. <laughs> so it's, a, it's a, a variety of different wines, but um, and now I get to make Chamberson and Sangiovese and everything here too. All right. Thank you. Mark Krislavsky, winemaker for Children's Vineyards, and I've been doing this since before um, she was born. <laughs> She's on the way in, I'm on the way out. Um, and again, I, I started my career at Dry Creek uh, Vineyards in Sonoma. Um, I got my undergraduate and graduate degree in cell biology from Columbia University. Um, went to, got my graduate degree at the University of Bordeaux. Did my apprenticeship at Chateau Pichon Milan and spent two years there and went from there to University of Stellenbosch in South Africa and I taught for a year. Uh, left Stellenbosch, went to Margaret River in Australia, um, spent a year there and then went back to California, spent a year in Napa, almost a year, not quite a year in Napa, 
And then I went back to a place I said I would never go to, which is home, which is Long Island. <laughs> and we did a startup there, and I stayed for 18 years uh, on Long Island. I left through about 1,160 acres of grapes and just under 200,000 cases of wine. And was looking for a little bit of change and uh, had the opportunity to do a little partnership with Richard Childress. And they came to North Carolina in 2003. And uh, I've been here ever since, um, you know, seeing the growth of the Akron Valley in North Carolina as a whole. All right, so my name is Nadia Hetzel. I'm the winemaker of Cypresspin Vineyard, our predominantly Muscovite producing facility. I studied winemaking, enology, and viticulture at the University of Geisenheim in Germany. Uh, I did an internship at Schloss Johannesburg. And then I came to the States right afterwards and went to Texas and worked with hot climate varietals. And then went up to Iowa and worked with cold climate varietals. I'm kind of crazy, I know. And now I'm here in North Carolina working with Muscadine. Um, my father's actually from Goldsboro, and we have our family here. And so it's kind of like a getting back to your roots sort of thing, and it's really interesting to work with. So I'm really happy to be here. Michael. Michael Helton. Uh, my wife Amy and I own Hanover Park Vineyard, which is where we are. I did a honeymoon in the south of France and never had tasted, uh, never really drank wine before. And after a month in the south of France, I fell in love and had a very serious bad habit, or good habit. But when I came home, I realized there was no real information. Surrey did not exist. Uh, the closest place was in the central part of Virginia. I was the third in the state making vinifera. So what I did, but I was also, I was a Fulbright scholar. I'd spent a dozen years or so at the university. I also then taught at the university. So I approached the same program. I set up a program for myself the same way I would if I was gonna do my PhD. I found every facility, university, that teaches enology and viticulture in English, which is I studied work from South Africa, New Zealand, Australia. New Zealand, or Australia, tends to want you to buy all their research. But also I looked at UC Davis and Fresno State and studied the PhD synopsises for what was going on at UC Davis. UC Davis is more theoretical. Fresno was more applied but also looked into and did a lot of work and studying of what was going on in Oregon and at the university and in Washington. Also at uh, Cornell, uh, at the Geneva Research Center, and in Canada they have one that, but it wasn't necessarily the vines I was looking for. Uh, I spoke German when I was much younger, so I did a little research at Geisen with Geisenheim or what was available I could get my hands on. And I set myself up a six-year program uh, for learning how to make wine. It should have been 10. <laughs> uh, did a four-year program for how to learn how to grow grapes. That should have been 50. <laughs> <laughs> the things we learned. Yeah, but I approach everything I do, and my wife will tell you this, I'm nuts. Um, I'm outrageously focused. If you want someone to walk and chew gum, I'm not your person, but I could do either or fantastically well. And I document and write everything down that I possibly can to try to learn how to make wine. 
I did not realize when we started making wine that I had any kind of a palate. But I did begin to appreciate the fact that I could determine subtleties. And I just, as an art teacher, you tend to always encourage your students to trust their instincts. And that's what I had to do. I, good, I wanted to know, first of all, what can we do in North Carolina? And I was remembering of the, I think it was Dirty Harry movie, of the good, bad, and indifferent, or it was the ugly. But I didn't know whether we could make good wine, bad wine, or indifferent wine. But I was determined to find out. That's a great segue, actually, to our next question. So we have a little bit of a structured questions here, but we're going to open it up to the audience as well for anything that they may have. But, I mean, you, you kind of touched on the next topic, Michael. So to the panel, what's it like to be a winemaker here in North Carolina? We all, everyone has been very diverse uh, backgrounds. They've done it here. They've done it in Texas, hot climate, cool climate, different countries. What's it like to be a winemaker here in North Carolina? So I think it's, I think it's fascinating and it's really exciting because this is a new region and so we have so much to discover and so much that has been discovered uh, and it's really exciting to get to learn a lot, it's really exciting to play with different varieties, you have a lot of freedom from being in the United States versus you know, the rules in France or the rules in Italy. Um, but it's, it's challenging, but it's a good challenge. Yeah, I think that you know, winemaking in North Carolina is really no different than winemaking anywhere else in the world. It's, the science is the same of, of you know, growing grapes and making wine. It, the, I think the fun thing about being here is we're on the ground floor of, of, of an industry uh, that's really starting. Michael said, you know, he's number three, you know, grew up in IFRA. And so now there are 200 wineries. So we're at you know, a really special time in America where Americans are finally drinking wine. We're drinking regional wine. So it's a time we can all you know, grow up together. Something like everybody in the room now, uh, this might not have been possible 10 years ago. So I, I, I like that. I mean, uh, I have to agree with what they're, they're saying, that we're like at this exciting point in time, and you're really starting to see things kind of develop and happen. And, and watch it grow, and um, it's it's a really collaborative collaborative effort. So there's a lot of working together within the industry, and different aspects of the industry supporting each other and helping it to grow and pushing it to grow. So um, like it's really wonderful being here with the, the North Carolina wine guys who really have supported the wine industry and all that they've done to to move things along. So so everybody everybody works really well. So I really love that kind of atmosphere. Learning from individuals, how they've got their start, what they're doing differently, and kind of pulling all those aspects together. It's a, it's a great place to be and a good time to be here. I think growing grapes is, I agree, very similar to almost any place where you are. It's a matter of what is commercially viable. There are certain things we have trouble with. If you're not high enough, Riesling doesn't work very well. Uh, Pinot Noir is a little bit of a, it doesn't travel uh, to other places as well. But you determine what you want to raise, and part of it is to pay the rent. I have some experiments that don't necessarily pay the rent, but I do them for love, and they're a small part of what I do. I think one of the nicest things that about growing grapes here is 
that this is a new industry. But, well, what I'm trying to say is the new industry develops and brings new friendships. The first couple years we were open, there would be people that would come into the tasting room that knew 30 times more about French wine and Italian wine than I will ever know in my lifetime, but had never been into a winery. And when you first go into a place and you don't know the etiquette, you're a little unsure of yourself. And being school teachers, we quickly did Wine 101. And it was really amazing, the people that we meet. I would probably, because of the hard work, would have gotten out of this industry 10 years ago, except for the people that we meet and we know. One other comment I will make that you triggered on a thought. If you go to a hardware store, you have something you need, you go to a hardware store, or do you go to a shoe shop and they have what you need, you don't go to another shoe shop or another hardware store. But if someone comes up to see us because of an ad or a contact or something, um, they're gonna go to two other wineries. We are not competitors in any sense of the word. We have 200. If there were maybe 5,000 wineries in this state, I don't know then if we'd be competitors because people come into the wine industry or come into the wine uh, experience and it's, it's sort of a fellowship. So describe some of the challenges that come with growing grapes and making wine in North Carolina. <laughs> Can I say weather? No, no, we don't say any rain. <laughs> Every year is very different, but in my research in the very beginning, what excited me a little bit about that was that some of the very best wine comes from marginal regions. That in a 10-year period, you're going to have an absolute disaster, and you're also going to have something totally off the chart. You'll have then everything in between. You have the opportunity, given the weather, to rise above and see what you can do with these grapes to manipulate and rebuild something if Mother Nature has given you a bad hand. But you have the opportunity to make world-class wine right here. So weather aside, what else might be a challenge here? Well, for us in Vinifera, it became a matter of 20 years ago introducing people to the fact that there are alternatives to fruit wine and muscadine wine being made in North Carolina. There are quality wines being made everywhere. People just did not know that there were dry wines being made in North Carolina. I think the big, one of the biggest obstacles that, that we have to overcome in North Carolina is that there's, there's, has not been a culture of wine in North Carolina. And more and more, if we go to a poor someplace and they say, you know, you tell them what it is, and, and the reply is usually, oh, we didn't know they grew grapes in North Carolina, and we get that a lot. So um, as, as the industry grows and, and we get more of a market share, right now, all the wine that's sold in North Carolina in a year, probably less than 2% of it is produced in North Carolina. So you can, you know, I look at that optimistically, saying if if it would ever become four percent, you know, if you go to a place like Oregon, where it's in Oregon is, is probably eleven or twelve percent, um, we can double and triple our production. So part of it is getting word out. You know, the word gets out, 
we know that competitively we can fit into the market with, with quality products, but it's it just going to take, this takes its time. And then from the winemaking perspective too, it's like you almost have to be a better winemaker to be here and making wine. Yes, we have the weather challenges, like for us, like we're in Western North Carolina, it's one of the most biodiverse places in the entire world. So think about all the different, um, not only just bugs and animals, but um, sure, funguses and different kinds of things that can affect you. And uh, looking at some, some place like Washington State, they just phone it in, they're like, I want these kind of grapes, please, and a little bit of water here, and they just create the weather, they just create whatever they want. And we are, we are slaves to weather, but it's almost like, you know, that egg and a spoon race where you're just trying to get to the end and like carry <laughs> this like wine, it's such a baby, and you're trying to be so gentle and careful with it. But you have to be so much of a nurse in a way as a winemaker here, and it's, it's a lot more challenging than somewhere else. And it's something to me that's very, that's awesome. I, mean, I always like challenges. I think that if I had another career, I'd want to be a PI, I'd want to be a detective. <laughs> you get to do that so much. In this industry, is you're just trying to figure out what's going on, and we know so much and we know so little at the same time. So the challenges are um, really exciting. Yeah. I, I think um, for us, we're kind of in a unique situation where we produce primarily muscadine, but we're also in a niche market where we're trying to show that we're producing a premium product where um, other times muscadine doesn't command a very high price point. We're trying to constantly bang on the drum and pound it out there that we're producing something a little more unique. Um, and uh, it's, it's sometimes a, a little bit of an uphill battle, but I see things starting to open up and, and mindsets and perspectives starting to change there, which is a really positive development for lately. That's awesome. That's, I mean, it's, we have so many different aspects of it, so that's great to hear. So we have a range of uh, winemakers here, you know, in experience from being just kind of in the industry for only a couple of years to more than a couple of years. So what was your first eye-opening experience about making wine here in North Carolina? I'll just tell you my first one that, you know, I'm not from North Carolina, you can tell by my accent, but anyway. <laughs> I, um, so I came to North Carolina, we were building a winery, and I was trying to justify my paycheck for the first year because, you know, we're building a winery and I'm planning, we're planning labels and marketing and all that stuff. And so I volunteered to speak at every rotary or every club I could speak to. Let me get out and get the word out. And that gave me a free lunch if I would go speak. And so the question, in, you know, 15 to 17 years ago now would come up. But first time I ever spoke, a woman in the back of the room, well, first of all, I got all the letters from Richard, that Richard Childress thing was going to build a winery. And a lot of people wrote to Richard Childress Racing. So I answered all the letters. And some of them were like, how dare you open a winery and how bad alcohol was. I'll never drive another Chevrolet. It's all going to answer all these. So here I am, you know, going out. And I got up one morning and I was going to drive to a breakfast meeting in the western part of the state. So I believe like 4 o'clock in the morning. So I drove all the way out. And everybody's eating their breakfast. And I was up in the front kind of nervous. And I get up and I'm talking. And one woman in the back of the room questions. And she raised her hand. And she said, what about wine and what about the religious people in North Carolina? And I paused for a second and I thought, uh, you know, I knew it was coming. So I said, you're probably referring to Jesus' first miracle. And when I go about the miracle, she sat back down. Um, but initially, 
you know, to go to the House and go to, you know, Mike Easley when he was the governor, to get him to wine events and try to get our agenda pushed, the wine agenda pushed. You couldn't even get one of these guys to, to take a photograph of a wine glass in their hand. They would pick, no. they were just definitely afraid. And that's all really, really changed. And so part of, you know, we support what you guys are doing because that's part of getting wine to be mainstream. And so that's my, that was my first challenge. Uh, one thing that's been really cool about here, like, uh, in when I was in school for for winemaking and viticulture, they talked a lot about this was in France, and they talked a lot about muscadines and the benefits of muscadines. And we went to one of our class field trips was to the IFB. It's the it's the main place where they breed everything, and all of the nurseries in the United States get their stuff from there. And so we go into one of the greenhouses, they have a bunch of muscadines over there, and they're like, yes, this is a muscadine, this is a very special species, and it has all these amazing qualities, and we're breeding hybrids, and then even at conferences where, where top researchers would come and they would talk about hybrids, and talk about how we have to um, uh, look at muscadines, and, and look at promoting uh, innovation within within the species, and it's just, it's like, I'm <laughs> <laughs> And so that was, that was just really fascinating, and then seeing here, like, hybrids, too, are, are very accepted and grown and delicious, and so having a lot of stigma about that, but then actually being here, tasting it, and getting to make some of those wines, it's, it's great. Like, of course, we can do this. That's really interesting. I noticed too, like when you take muscadine, excuse me, outside of North Carolina, people are like, wow, what is this? This is so different and unique. Because if you really have kind of a mindset and a, um, like a approach it in an open, I'm a wine consumer, I truly am interested <clears throat> in trying different things, then muscadine is kind of out there. It's one of those bucket list wines I would say that you should at least have some experience with. And the response from like we've taken it to Germany to our family and so forth. And we've had people really wondering where they can get it, what it is, and it, there's so much potential out there. In our own state, we have a different kind of image of it. And so, and I know we're gonna talk into, talk onto that, but um, like when I first came to North Carolina, I was, I had had some exper experience with muscadine wine. And when I went to Cypress Bend Vineyards, I tried theirs and you, you have to realize that we, produce all our own grapes on 35 acres and we have really total control over the process. So they're producing kind of smaller batch wines and the, the quality just blew me away. I've never had a wine like that before. And I think I think it has a lot of potential to be a very interesting sort of rival that, that people may want to experience out there. And Michael, any eye-opening <clears throat> experiences for you? Oh, two. One is I planted the first four acres, two, two in the one year, two the second year. And at the end of that year, uh, a gentleman across the street had come over and we were chatting and he is a member of one of the churches, the Baptist church nearby. And he said, I understand you're gonna have to pull all your, uh, your vines up, roots and all. Cause, and I had never mentioned that I was gonna also do a winery. I wanted to take it, because this was a dry county when we started. So I had to be very, I, I was tiptoed on eggshells. 
Well, I explained to him that no, we're not pulling our vines out. because He said because they were going to be sold across the river to this other winery and they'll make wine out of it. So you'll have to pull the vines out. In the same week, the pastor from another Baptist church approached me about making communion wine. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, okay. Now the other thing was that I'm trying to learn about wine because prior to us on the honeymoon, I never drank wine. So Amy would periodically actually very regularly <laughs> put a towel around a bottle and pour a glass and hand it to me and go, okay, tell me everything you know. And after about two weeks of intense research, I could figure out whether it was a white or a red. <laughs> <laughs> but I started picking up things and trying to think about it, and I wasn't very good at that. But one day I went inside, I went into the bedroom, and I'm sitting on the bed by the nightstand, I'm taking my all my paraphernalia out, and she brought me a glass, and I took a, you know, smelled it, and I took a sip of it, and I took another sip, and I just looked at her, and I was almost tears in my eyes, and I just said, you know, if I could make wine this good, that would be all I'd ever want to do the rest of my life. And she smiled and took the towel away from my own wine. <laughs> and I was like, holy Thank you, Amy. <laughs> All right, so we talked about this a little bit, but let's, let's go into this a little bit more in depth. So Muscadine versus Vinifera. So let's talk about, I guess, particularly for Mark and Nadia, who worked with both uh, a lot. What are some of the similarities in processing both? And what are some of the differences? Well, I would, I would say, start by saying, you know, not necessarily muscadine versus vinifera, but muscadine and vinifera, and we all work together. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then, so some of the similarities, basically, it's a grape. It's a Vetus rotundifolia, as opposed to Vetus uh, vinifera, and I love that because I'm rotundifolia. I don't mind And, um, and the similarities, I would say, is that, that it is a grape, and so, how you treat it out in the vineyard and how you process it is going to reflect that. So if you have you know, very good vineyard practices and you have a way of uh, watching your uh, canopy balance, you don't overcrop, but you have a respect for the vines where, where they're growing and so forth, you're going to be able to pull in fruit that is higher quality and reflective of that and make wines that are that are also very good if you follow sound winemaking practices. So, you know, if you mistreat a vinifera grape badly, you're going to have a bad wine as well. So, uh, having said that, we're, we've kind of drilled things down a little bit. Again, we're kind of a premium muscadine winery, and what we're saying here is we, can, we kind of command a wine, a wine price from $12 to $14, say, and some people say, wow, that's a lot for muscadine. And sure it is, but for instance, uh, we know where we can yield the best quality out of our vineyards. We have 35 acres, and I know that there's a specific uh, segment of the vineyards um, that's a little bit closer to the river, and a little shaded uh, by the trees, kind of surrounded by the, the trees, and it produces some of the best fruit that we get. And so we'll, we'll take those grapes, and we'll do a free run on it, and we'll keep them separated, and we'll do our dry wines out of that. And then we, 
also produce a wine called Magnolia. We produce three wines, basically, or work with three grapes of, um, of muscadines. We work with Carlos, which is a white, and we work with Magnolia, which is also a white, and then we use Noble as a red, which we blend. But also we're working on other things, too. We're trying to take that grape and see what all it can do, so we're making like a dry, barrel-aged red out of the Noble. And the fruit is absolutely amazing. If we have a really, really good year, we have intense aromatics, of course, but it's like sandalwood, raspberry. It's so voluptuous and fruit forward. And of course you have the muscadine note in there too. So it's, you know, that's gonna, that's gonna make it unique and different. But we're, we're working with these grapes a little differently. Like I'm trying different products on the different yeast types on, on the whites to kind of pull out their best aromatic characters. Um, and when it comes to similarities in the process, there are just a few you know, differences. Naturally, it's a low bricks grape, lower sugar. So we have to add some to, to that to bump it up. Then also it's a slipskin bridal. So when you're pressing, you have to watch that it doesn't clog your press. We have to add inner rice hulls in order to kind of let the juices flow out and so forth. So th there are like small little differences, but the main, uh, the main thing through is if you know your sound winemaking practices, and know how to pull the most out of a high quality fruit, you're going to be able to produce wines of high quality as well, and then you can command a higher price point for them. And we're starting to see a lot of success with that. So, so we're really excited what the future has to offer and what we can continue to do there. I think when we think about muscadine versus vinifera and what the differences are, it's similar to if you think about maybe a Pinot Gris versus a Cabernet Sauvignon. You know, really, there are a lot of differences. You wouldn't say they're similar. Very different style, very different longevity, very different mouthfeel and texture, and, and all those things. Um, one of the the issues that we have here with muscadine is it, it, it has a little bit of a bad rap, um, and the, and the bar was set very low in quality and and, and, and price point. So if you go to the you know you go to the store and you see you know five forty nine to seven ninety nine price of muscadine, um, and, and that's been, once that's established, it makes it harder for quality producers to come in later and get that price up. Um, and, and, and so we've been trying to do that, you know, I think Cypress Bend has been really, has done a great job. Uh, and because we're only working with a few different varieties, Noble, and, you know, Carlos, but there are so many other varieties of muscadine that have so much more promise out there. Doreen is one, I mean, it smells just like pineapple. And, and so, as quality producers, any grows you imagine, the thing I like, the beauty about it is, um, it, it, this is home for it. Right. You know, whereas vinifera is not home. Right. So, always gotta, you know, there's always got to be a, a certain amount of manipulation a winemaker has to have to, to squeeze the, the life out of, of, of quality. Whereas here, it's, it's much less inputs, much, it grows much more sustainable. So, we have this ability to do organic, you know, close to organic. Um, the pH is really, really low, so we have much less use of sulfur dioxide, um, and, and it just, when, it, when you're so close to home, it lights it here. So, what's one thing about making muscadine wine that you would want someone to know? So, yeah, like touching on what Mark said about this is home for muscadine, is like you see this big trend, well, it's not really a trend, it's always been there, but like when you look at um, Chefs and so forth, they always talk about their, their, like, their roots, where they came from, and they want to pull those ingredients into the food that they make. And so with muscadine, you know, this is the indigenous grape of the southeastern United States. 
And that's a really cool thing when you say, hey, I've tried this indigenous grape from Georgia, or you know, I mean, like Georgia, <laughs> or like an orange wine, or I've tried this indigenous grape from Italy or whatever. That's really cool, but hey, this is a really cool indigenous grape as well that um, you know we want good examples of that we can take out there to the rest of the world and, and show them that. Like right now, uh, the natural wine movement is kind of coming up, and you have the orange wines, again, from Georgia, where they're fermented on the skins and these clay vessels for like on seven or plus months. And uh, they also turn out to be a little higher in acid because of that, and they're, they're very bright orange, but have very intense fruity characteristics. And these wines are very trendy right now. And I mean, you know, Muscadine has a lot to offer as well as being a, a trendy indigenous uh, heirloom variety. So we have like all these cool buzzwords we could throw out there. <laughs> so it's all about the marketing of Muscadine. Yeah, that's a good, mm -hmm. that's a, with, with marketing, yeah, that's a good way to maybe take some of those words. But then, you know, we have a different kind of clientele a little bit in our area um, that, that also look for the sweeter wines. So we definitely do sweet as well as dry. We try to, you know, we try to kind of use all the crayons in the box and really <laughs> produce some interesting wines out of it. I think one of the, I have muscadine that I use not every year, but I, I have one thing we call early twilight that I will use uh, Carlos in that. We were at a national conference one time and a bunch of winemakers sitting around afterwards and somebody was saying something about, oh, you guys, North Carolina, and uh, muscadine came up. And one of the other local winemakers sort of poo-hooed it a little bit. And this other guy was from California. He had no idea. And he just said, well, you act like it's the Antichrist. <laughs> And his comment was very, very good. He said, a good winemaker can make good wine, maybe even great wine, out of anything. You know, and he started talking about his dandelion wine, and I was like, well, okay, wait, wait a minute. But <laughs> if, if you take Carlos or Magnolia and you smell it, you're smelling grape, the natural ability of a great taste and smell. If you pick up Niagara, an upstate New York type of white, you smell grape. If you pick up Muscat Petit Grand, well, Muscat Blanc Petit Grand, you get the same thing, which is a French grape, you get the same, same smell. It's, they're a little bit different in how that you can deal with them. Their quality is a little bit different, but you're dealing with an opportunity to take a natural flavor that is not in anything else. It's in a vinifera. I think Niagara is, what, twin sister of Concord or something? And, of course, Muscadine, and I don't know the big long names. I never could pronounce them. I would have been a surgeon, <laughs> I guess, but... You have an opportunity to work with a flavor and a nose that no other wine is going to give you. These three will, I'm sure there's another one or two that I'm not familiar with, but those are the three that have that same familiar grape flavor smell to them. So we're going to move into a segment that we're going to call This or That. So what we'll do is we'll give you kind of a list of things, and you give us your preference on that thing in that little list. And it's quick, quick first. Yep, one answer, one or two word answers. Um, we're just going to go down the line. We'll kind of pick it up from there. Ready to start? All right. 
Uh, red wine, white wine, or rosé wine? Red. Wine. White. Red. <laughs> blends? Blends or single varietals? Blends always. Blends. Blends? Okay. Single blends. Varietals are blends always. Yeah. Well, you can do so much more, even if it's 85% of one variety. And or the next year it's only 70%. One word answers, Michael. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Yes, ma'am. Yes, dear. Where's my wife? I thought I heard her say something. Chardonnay, oak or stainless steel? Oak. Both. 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 It's one of the few grapes that'll give you, that can go both ways. That's true. Huh? Tint towards stainless. Yeah. All right. We'll, we'll allow a few more words on this right. one. Okay. Um, on the next two, rather. So your favorite grape to work with? Mm. You're in North Carolina? Wherever you want. But in North Carolina would be great. Chamberson. Yes. Chamberson? I like them all. I have no, no favorite. Yeah, that's a tough call. Pass. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on the weather. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. And your favorite wine pairing. This can be with either a wine that you make or your favorite in general. So I'll turn it to Yes. Alsatian Gewürztraminer and Flammkuchen, which is at flat. Uh, is it, oh, what do they call it here? Flam, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just called Flammkuchen. No, it's called oh. Flammkuchen. It's like a pizza. It's like a little pizza with a little pizza. It's like a flatbread. There's a French term for two. Hard flammate. No, that's wrong. Oh, Cabernet or ribeye? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good Which Cabernet? Michael? Okay. You haven't said one yet? My favorite is whatever Amy's serving. <laughs> it's a safe answer. Safe answer. The worst and Caesar salad. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. I have to try that. That's awesome. Well, thanks for playing that little segment there. We enjoyed that. What have you learned in your years of experience? You know, a couple sentences here. <laughs> Who wants to go first? Can we start with Michael since he's probably learning more? I should have gone into law. <laughs> <laughs> I think when we first began, it was dry more often than now. But somebody else had mentioned to me that since we began, this country has been in a recession some more extreme than others. And so the comment from this guy who was an economist, he said, can you imagine what things would be like in sales if we were not in a recession? And I think it's time enough people know about us now. The industry has grown. We have people who know how to come to wineries and do tastings. So I'm most impressed with the people. Um, the best bottle of wine is the one that tastes good to you, that you like. And just take away the snobbery, kick off your shoes, and grab that bottle you like when you go home and sit on the couch. Because that's an excellent bottle of wine, and don't let anyone tell you it's got to be 50 or 60 bucks. And super this or that. I mean, every now and then splash out. But, okay. <laughs> that's good advice. I think what I've learned the, the most, or mostly driven home, is that uh, for us it's a business. For everybody in the room, hopefully it's a business. And you have to listen to the consumer and make the wine that, that the consumer wants, 
and uh, whether it be white or red, or, or for us, um, a variety of ones, whether they be sweet and or dry at different price points, because that's what's going to make the business successful. I'm understanding a little bit now better why people have been making wine for so long and how it can get passed from generation to generation. One thing being the business side, but also this is a long game. And as winemakers, you get one chance per year to make something, to grow, you spend a whole year growing it, and then you just try not to screw it up. And, go on. <laughs> and then the next year is completely different. And then the next year is completely different. And maybe you have a similar year every 10 to 15 years. So in your lifetime, you really don't get to make wine that many times. You don't get to make the same wine that many times. You really never get to. And so you look at something like beer, where someone who's been making beer for a year, maybe could make beer 60 times and have so much more knowledge about making beer and what it can taste like than someone that's you know 80 years old and making new wine for 60 years. So it's just it's really interesting to kind of step back and look at that perspective of this is just a never-ending you know cycle of these little snippets of information that we can we pass on to ourselves from year to year and then gets passed on generations. Those are great insights. That's fantastic. Yeah. So we are on our last question of the structured part, and then we'll open it up to a few questions from the audience. But for the panel right now, what do you think is in store for the future of winemaking in North Carolina? Because I have lots of kids. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, now you tell me. <laughs> Can I adopt? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we're going to see, you know, hopefully, we're going to see a period of growth in North Carolina and more of a period of acceptance for local wine. And the phenomenon that we're having here where people don't understand or they don't, they say we don't know wine was, was made there or tasted wine. And, and, you know, people have very little respect for what is local. And that's, that's happened in California. You know, it's happened in Oregon. It's happened in, in many other places. And we just have to unfortunately do our time. And you know, if you're younger, you have have longer time doing it, but the groundwork has to be um, laid, and like Michael said, he's, you know, when he started, there were only three wineries, so we're an infant uh, industry here, and we just have to, um, you know, it, I think it's important that wineries consistently make good wine. You can't put out a bad wine, you can't put out bad vintage, um, and, and that's what's going to grow the industry. So the industry will grow, the, the ability for it to grow rapidly is going to be based on quality. Um, sustainability too, I think um, as we get better at this, as we figure out where where we need to be as far as like zoning, um, where we need to plant, because you look at somewhere um, like Chassagne-Montrache in France and it's one side of the hill that they figured out over 2,000 years that this one side of the hill this person at the top makes this much money because the wine is better. This person over here makes this much money because the wine is a little bit less. And we're, we're kind of like, we're planting, we're trying to figure it out. So, so I think that zoning is going to get found in. We're going to find those places that are better for growing wine and better for what, what grape over here versus over there. And then working towards um, 
those rates are going to be better because they're going to be healthier in those places. So the sustainability of moving towards um, moving towards organic, moving towards um, healthier rates. Um, I kind of to, to get back towards Muscadine because I have you know always heard Muscadine. But there's a couple of bright stars on the horizon just uh, going forward. Um, there's been some interesting research recently released about um, muscadine extract and a very concentrated form and how it's having enormous health benefits we won't be able to talk about them here and they, they haven't been released, but there's a lot of promising things in, in the future. And then also there's a lot more of like a collaborative effort for both Mithra and muscadine and that in the future will hopefully lead to more resources for everybody. Um, I know in Muscadine we have a lot of research in the vineyards, but we don't have very much. There's some winemaking issues, some things that as a winemaker you constantly come up against and you're like, why is this that, why is this that? For instance, it, there's a lot of elagic acid in the skins, but in vinifera there's like nearly no elagic acid naturally occurring. And what effect does that have on flavor, profile, and so forth? Just certain things that, that it would be neat to look a little deeper into and have a little more research on it. So hopefully some of the collaborative efforts um, going forward are going to help grow different aspects of the, the uh, industry and pooling everybody's resources together that that's going to have a really positive impact on growing North Carolina. Hopefully things are going to happen similarly that they did in Oregon and Washington and uh, Long Island there reaches a certain point where the quality begins to be recognized and not just at the local level, either through magazine, articles, shows, competitions. It's a, a combination of all the above. But at different stages, these other wine growing areas have advanced and as long as the quality is there, as Mark's talking about, I think as we expand and continue to have the same quality and improve that quality uh, and working jointly together with the advantages that we have as North Carolina uh, grape growing industry, uh, hopefully it'll grow the same way it has in Oregon and Washington and upstate New York. Just give it time. Oh, I don't have enough. <laughs> so we'll open it up to the questions from the audience. So we'll take a few, and we may repeat the questions so we can get it on the mic. So go ahead. Um, so for a wine lover who's not a winemaker, they're not a song, um, what resources or books or tasting habits would you uh, recommend to just help someone kind of add to their joy, right? So just learn more, um, wine geek out, and have more fun. For me, it's wine and food, you know, and what we do a lot is have groups of people, eight people together, and you have everybody bring a bottle in a bag, and, uh, and try and stump the people on what it is. And we do it with winemakers, there's nothing you know, better than fooling a winemaker. I do a lot with Steve Shepard, there's nobody better than fooling Steve Shepard, because <laughs> he gets so mad. <laughs> he yes, swears to put it in a different bottle or whatever, but it's just fun to be able to because, um, you know, as humans, we always taste the wine from the outside in. And so when you're looking at the bottle, the weight of the bottle, the heaviness of the bottle, the labor, uh, just to give you a quick you know, story, one time I went to, I would go to the trade show in Milan every two years, 
and I was going through and they have all the producers of equipment and they had label producers there and they had a little small roll of Dom Perignon labels. And I, and I took the roll and I put it in my bag. <laughs> and it was, you know, pressure sets of when they first came out, like the mid 80s. And whenever my friends came over, I always took spark on the and put the Dom Perignon. <laughs> oh my God, it was the best one. Oh, it was wonderful, the best thing. And so if you have a Dom Perignon, you know, you're tasting the outside in. And so if you do it blind, you try to guess what the variety is and where it comes from, and really have to struggle to pull that out. And that's always great fun to be able to do that. You know, everybody yeah. do a different wine. It's great advice. We, the variation we did on this, and it was almost identical. You come in and you take that bottle that you just brought. It goes, someone puts it in a sack, and then after you've walked away, they put a number on it. So let's say there's eight winemakers there with eight sacks, and then we're tasting all of the wines and making little notes about each, each number. Then, after about a half an hour or whatever length of time, you put them all down on a table, still in the bags, and you'd start with one person, well, what's your notes on number one? And then everybody reads their notes on number one, and invariably somebody's gonna have a note and somebody else is gonna say, you did what? Wait a minute, let me have another sample of one. And so you're retesting things, but you still don't know what they are. You learn so much that way. And then, of course, they're revealed and you go, oh. <laughs> My wine was in last place. Oh, <laughs> oh that was last week. No, it's... <laughs> I think but, it's treated as a, so, a study room. You know, if you all get together and you're trying to study and you talk it out as opposed to just doing it by yourself. And it becomes social, because really wine is social, so you want to share, share yeah. with people. It's, it's there was an organization at the... What did we go to two weeks ago in New York at Java Center? Oh, the Beverage Expo, something like that. And there was a group there that teaches wine classes. And he had, and I, it's like WISP or something, or W... W-S-E-T. W-S-E-T. Okay. See, I don't remember any of that. I just remember what things taste like. <laughs> <laughs> but when we were tasting three wines, unknown, they're asking simple questions. And then in the booklet, they had, like for nose, four different things to think about. And then for the... You know, the middle, different ways to look at it. And they were using, had vocabulary that I found very, very interesting. I've been doing this for 20 years, and I'm sitting there going, I wish I'd saw this 20 years ago. <laughs> so that I knew better how to analyze what it is that I have in front of me, that I'm seeing, that I'm smelling, that I'm tasting, that I'm remembering on the finish. It was a good teaching. It's on the framework. Yeah. What I like to do is, um, when I open a bottle of wine, I will go through the fridge and pull out all kinds of random things and talking about food and wine, just just like, I have a sip, try this thing. Does it go with that? Does it not? And just try all the different kinds of things. And you'll be surprised by things that go, like, there's not really a lot of rules. And there's some breaks that go with certain things, as, and you can kind of count on it, but for the most part, you never know what's going to go together, and it, it really depends on the producer, it depends on the year, it depends on the grape, it depends on so many different things. But the glass is like yeah. trusting, trusting your taste buds and what you like, and just listening to listening to your own tongue um, and your sense of smell. And some of that too, like when you go, like I like going to a wine shop 
a small, if you find a small wine shop, and give them a flavor profile instead of a grape, saying, saying like, you know, I like something bright and a little citrusy and a little bit like this. Uh, and that's a lot easier, because that may be 10 different grapes and maybe 10 different regions, and they can run <coughs> you as a way to discover things and find things that you never knew that you like, and you might have a line that that you thought you were going to find, and then all of a sudden you have it with fried chicken, and it's the best one I've ever <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. So it's just, yeah, just, And there's some apps out there, too, I think, where you can, like, take pictures of the bottle and kind of record some of your notes, so you can keep it all together, and you have it for later reference. Yeah, like Zubio and things like that. That's awesome. Other questions from the audience? Yes, go ahead. What, as winemakers, what are your opinions on the Quality Alliance program that's uh, being incorporated in North Carolina? Essential. Can you being the winemakers being put to the test to pass the sensory test, et cetera? Okay. Is, you know, I think the, uh, there's two parts really to that. Is, and, and one is that um, as an industry, we need to let the public know that we're quality driven. You know, that there's a, there's, a, there's you know, in, in the wine business, uh, third-party endorsement is very important. And if you talk to wine salespeople, they want ratings. Give me ratings. You know, what, give me a 90 in the wine spectator. And so people will look through magazines. You know, most, most people don't trust their palate for wine. They trust their palate for food. They know if they like ham or they don't like ham. But they don't know about wine as much. It only feels confident. So you get third-party endorsement. And really what this is doing is saying, we have educational institutions. Um, and there are a lot of newer wineries starting up that don't have you know, funding to do everything that needs to be done you know, for testing and things like that. And this is just a way to, to help a less funded winery to increase the collaborative effort that we're all doing in here and, share, and sharing the knowledge and getting the public to know. So it's, it's an important growth step for, for North Carolina. There's a lot of, you know, we talk about the romance and mystery of wine and the, the artisticness of it, and that exists, but there's a lot of things that you need to know absolutely it's a food product and there's lab tests and chemistry that you do to make sure that everything is is right and and it has to be right it can't you can't put out something that's spoiled you can't put out something that you know somebody is just like oh this is really unique and it and it's kind of funky and it's just like no no don't drink that that's not good for you like <laughs> so, so there's that part of it and then also the higher quality standard that we are held accountable to as a region is going to promote the entire region. It's, it's, people can count on, okay, this is QRP that stands for a certain level of quality. It's like VOCG in Italy or something. You see a wine with that on it, you know that they're following certain rules that they're being held accountable. I'll make a comment then right. on his question. Go for it, Michael. Uh, it's essential, critically essential. I have a reluctance. My wine is old, old world style wine. It tastes nothing like California or American wine that much. When I enter into competitions, frequently it doesn't do well. If I have a judge or someone from Europe who's a wine judge and tastes my wine, they, they love it. So I was apprehensive about what kind of reaction there would be. But it doesn't matter. The industry has got to stand behind quality. 
and continue to, I know a few winemakers have you know, said, well, you know, uh, they, they do like bad wine, we need to get rid of them. And I'm going, no, 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 I'm an educator. Find out what's wrong and let's fix it. Educate them. Yeah, and then having samples from all of us together, they're going to be able to see trends, they're going to be able to address issues like, okay, we're seeing this problem kind of consistently all different regions, and they're able to, to maybe like reach out at some of our conferences and be like, hey, okay, let's address this issue together and, and help us as an industry. That, that's the end of the uh, panel discussion today and the podcast episode, so we want to thank Sharifi, Mark, Nadia, and Michael for joining us, and thanks for those in the audience uh, as well. So, thank you. Again, thank you for being on Cork Talk. I will make one more comment. I would like to thank these two for what they're doing for our industry. This concludes our special episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to the winemaker panel for joining us at the second annual NC Wine Blogger Summit. We really enjoyed having a live audience for this recording and look forward to bringing you more episodes like this. And if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review. This helps others find our podcast. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember... A cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! <laughs>